Today on the Bible Reading Challenge podcast, we are going to give an overview of First and Second Peter. My name is Aaron Ventura, and I am joined today by my friend and former Greyfriar brother, Tyler Hatcher. Uh, Ty is an associate pastor at Trinity Church in Kirkland, Washington. He is married to Christina, and they have four uh, really cute kids and one more on the way. Ty, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Doing great, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about what church life is like in Washington State? People around the country have heard about the the uh, autonomous zone and some of the other crazy things that are happening there. Uh, can you give us just a little perspective of what the church is doing over there? Yeah, um, I can try. It's uh, it's definitely these are weird times. Um, so our church is uh, meeting in a parking lot uh, and enjoying the opportunity to see one another and worship in person as opposed to just doing a live stream or or, or not getting together um, so we've really appreciated that and seen the fruit of still enjoying some physical fellowship together uh, but uh, our governor is uh, wanting us to wanting to legislate how we or give orders to how we worship and so um, we're seeking to uh, observe some of the health concerns, but, but we're not letting, letting him dictate how we worship. So I think my understanding is that uh, serving communion right now is against the governor's orders, um, or it was recently, they, they changed so quick, it's hard to keep up. But, yeah. um, but we've just said um, that it's not the governor's call. Um, so we're gonna continue worshiping. Um, as we're, as best we're able, and uh, while keeping in mind um, both people's health concerns, where those are, uh, where there are concerns, and uh, and people's consciences. So we want to not burden people's consciences with um, requiring them to do certain things or or forbidding them from doing certain things. But um, we are going to worship God as as we think His Word tells us to. Yeah, so that's what we're doing. Um, it's a little hard to know what. Um, the church out in the Seattle area is doing because it's hard to identify the church. Um, there's so many different branches and, um, and, and views on all kinds of different things, including just the recent orders and whatnot. So there's not a, there's not a unified approach to this. We have a good, um, good fellowship with a handful of other churches out here that are doing very similar things to we, to what we are. And that's been good. Yeah, so we're we're in First Peter, and uh, we're going to actually hit one of the major themes in First Peter is this kind of relationship between uh, Christians who are uh, scattered, and these are Jewish Christians. We find out in uh, the first verses who are scattered, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we live in a world that is hostile to us. And in chapter two, there's a section about, you know, uh, servants submissive to masters, wives submissive to husbands, and then uh, everyone submissive to the ordinance of man or, or, or the king as supreme or to governors. And so uh, this is kind of a very pertinent text, but we also need to be really careful for how we make applications from a, a first century context to modern day. So uh, before we get there, uh, why don't we just back up? Can you, what what should people know about Peter, the writer of these letters, and how might that affect the way we we read these letters from him? Yeah, yeah, really good question. Um, Peter's um, known as um, probably the most bombastic of the apostles. Uh, he's blunt. Uh, he um, speaks his mind when he's with Jesus, um, and it gets him into all kinds of trouble. And he says some of the most profound things. He's the one that identifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, he tells Jesus, um, "You, we know and have come to believe that you are the Son of God. Where else would we go? We, we can't go anywhere else. So he's um, um, blunt and bombastic in his faith and blunt and bombastic in his errors, too, when he um, Jesus rebukes him and, and calls him Satan, <laughs> in a sense. Um, so, so that's who Peter is. Um, and then in the book of Acts, we know that Peter is, um, in many ways, leading the charge of the early church in his preaching, getting into all kinds of trouble, um, getting thrown into prison. Um, uh, I've heard uh, somebody else mention this recently, but um, Peter exits the book of Acts as a wanted criminal. Um, you know, so he gets out of prison, um, miraculously shows up with his uh, Christian community, and then we don't hear about Peter again. So he's, when, when Peter's writing this letter, he's likely still 
a wanted man. Um, and and um, so we don't know exactly his particular situation, but that's something of it. Yeah, it's really cool. So we, in the Bible reading challenge, people who are reading this would have just finished the book of Acts and you'll see, uh, you know, we're preachers and when it's fun to preach Peter's sermons because they are so gutsy in your face and there's just, you know, they're very pointed and powerful. And yeah, God uses even the, the personalities of the apostles. There, there's there, the pitfalls of, of being bold and bombastic. And there's actually a way that God weaponizes them for his own purposes. And um, I was just kind of looking up, you know, there's, uh, if you go to seminary, sometimes they make you memorize Paul's missionary journeys, you know, his three missionary journeys and what his travels. And you got to remember the map and all the different places, yeah, right. it's a lot to keep track of. And, and I was just thinking like, you know, I don't really know Peter's missionary journey as well as Paul's. And so I kind of looked it up and, and you realize, man, we don't really have a ton of information about him just because we just have these two letters and we have what, like you mentioned, what, what is there in the book of Acts. So there's, um, you know, he's very prominent in, uh, uh, in the Jerusalem church. There's this persecution. And um, the beginning of First Peter, it says, uh, to the pilgrims or to some translations, uh, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And um, the, the places mentioned are Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you were to look on a map and see where, are, where is this in modern day? So this is all modern day Turkey that these Jews are scattered. And then there's this kind of, uh, there's this hint when, pe- when people are saying, where did Peter write this letter from? Some people will point to uh, chapter five. Um, it's like the, I think it's the very last verse, second right. to last, uh, verse 13. Uh, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you. Some people want to identify Babylon as Rome. Um, I don't take that view. Um, some people would say Babylon is just Babylon. So that'd be modern day Iraq. Uh, right. And then some people would say Babylon is uh, Jerusalem, actually. Uh, in, in Revelation, I take Babylon as Jerusalem. Other people take it as Rome. I think they're wrong. We'll 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 talk to Doug about that when we get to Revelation. Uh, do you have any view, do you have any view on Babylon and where Peter is writing this letter from? Yeah, um, my um, guess is uh, Jerusalem, um, primarily for the reason that you, that you're saying. Why why does he if he's writing from Rome? Um, why doesn't he just call it Rome? Um, is, or is he calling it Babylon just because he's slamming Rome? Um, could be. Um, we, we do know that he dies in Rome, um, or we have a good, good guess at that. Um, most, most people agree, or, or historians agree, that he is, um, dies during the reign of Nero uh, with Paul. Um, Eusebius says that Peter and Paul are buried together um, or in the, in the same place. Um, and so there's good indications that he dies in Rome, um, right before the fall of Jerusalem. Um, but we don't know when he gets there. Um, we don't know when that happens. Um, we know that he's writing this, um, or we have a good guess that he's writing this a couple of years before um, his death and before um, the end of Nero's reign. So, um, so it's hard to tell. Um, but uh, with the, the identification um, or the possible identification of um, Jerusalem being Babylon in Revelation, um, it's, it would make sense then that the apostles, among the apostles, they call Jerusalem Babylon. They know what's coming on Jerusalem in just a few years. Uh, and Peter actually references that, I think, a lot in these two letters, quite a lot, a surprisingly amount, actually. And so if you take that view, it makes a lot of sense to say that Babylon then is Jerusalem. Yeah. So the kind of the context uh, for people is uh, where we're going. So Nero starts, pers- Nero is uh, reigning. I forget uh, when his reign starts, somewhere in the 50s. 54. Yeah. And then the, the kind of the fire that he blames the Christians on. And then when persecution really heats up uh, is, I believe, 64. And then the destruction happens in 70 or, or the, the war begins and eventually is destroyed in 70. Yeah. And, and just kind of the, reading this book, it doesn't sound like there's the full court press on them of like Nero's, you know, torch and Christians yet, but it's coming. Yep. And so we, we 
probably would see this written, yeah, like you said, just before 64 AD. And then in Second Peter, he's gonna he knows like his death is is pretty imminent. Right. Um, it's gonna he's he's gonna die pretty soon. And and so written after First uh, Peter. And um, as you mentioned, there is this um, constant reference to an imminent judgment in First Peter and and Second Peter. Can you talk a little bit about how we should interpret some of these time markers where it's just at hand? Uh, this these things are about to happen to you. Um, how how should we interpret those signs? Yeah. Well, so the first thing I would say is um, if you don't. If you're reading through First Peter um, and you haven't, let's say you haven't landed on how you understand the day of the Lord or how you understand the last times or these things that are about to take place, those are, not, um, those are referenced a few times in, in these letters. So let's say you haven't landed on that, but you're reading through First Peter and you're trying to get a sense of what is Peter's point what, or why is he writing this letter? Well, I think it is pretty clear that he's writing it to them because he wants to give them assurance of their salvation um, to these Jewish Christians, primarily Jewish Christians. He wants to give them assurance of salvation and he wants to give them um, hope in their future. Um, and it's because of those things then that he addresses it, or with that as the foundation, he, he wants to teach them, how do I interact with the world around me, the world that I'm in. Um, but he's also doing it in such a way that it, it appears that he is um, um, giving them hope for their own vindication. So I'm, I'm a Jewish Christian, um, and Jesus said that um, families would be turned against one another. Um, uh, we know that there are all kinds of, that, that the Christians were persecuted by Jews um, heavily in these years. Um, there's probably all kinds of economic problems for Christians. Um, hard to get a job if you're a Christian. There's families that are splitting up. Husbands and wives are splitting up because of this. Slaves and masters, there's increased issues if you're a Christian slave. Um, so there's all these extra pressures by being a Christian. So what are these people thinking? Well, why it, it, did I make the right decision? Am I following the right guy? Um, um, and, and is Jesus real? Um, many of these people didn't know Jesus. Um, and Peter is writing 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So 30, 35 years, somewhere in there. So, um, so these Christians have these questions. What, what's going on? And how do I act as a Christian? And is it really worth it? And I think what Peter is saying is, hang in there. There's going to be a great vindication of all the Christians coming. It's coming very soon. And it's, if you understand, or if you see that that's what he's saying, that changes then how we view the day of the Lord. I don't think that he's talking about, and there's other passages we can look at to, to confirm this, uh, but he's not talking about the day of the Lord in the final judgment, I don't think primarily. He's saying, look, there's a judgment that is coming. And, and in that day of the Lord, um, the, the people that have been mocking you and persecuting you, they will be identified to be ignorant and foolish. Um, that's what he says in chapter two. And so live in such a way that, that imitates Christ so that when that final judgment comes, or not, that fi not the final judgment, when this impending judgment comes, you will be vindicated. You will be shown to have been, to been right. Jesus will be vindicated as a, as a true prophet and the true son of God. Yeah. I think a lot of people, uh, this is all throughout um, kind of all the New Testament letters, the Thessalonian letters, uh, James, Peter, Jude, they're, they're all talking about this judgment that is going to come. And a lot of people just automatically think this is the great white throne at the end of the world when right. we go to heaven and some people go to hell. Um, but a lot of people, when you read the gospels and you see what Jesus is saying there. So in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, if a prophet makes a prophecy and Jesus does. He says, I'm going to destroy this temple. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm not one brick is going to be laid on top of another. Um, if that doesn't come to pass, Jesus is a false prophet and, and they were right to crucify him. Right. And, and that element of vindication, justification of the righteous cause is exactly what this judgment on Jerusalem is. And I want to read, um, this passage in Luke, uh, which I think is really key. So this is Jesus talking and he says, uh, therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets 
which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, Jesus' generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. And then he goes on to give these woes. And so if you think about what Jesus is saying in Luke, and, and, and you are one of these first century Christians, and this is going to come up a lot more in Second Peter, but the question is, well, when is this blood going to be required? This is just seems to be an empty threat. And the generation is, it, we're almost to a full generation since Jesus said it. Right. You can imagine the scoffers, false teachers coming and saying, Jesus, Jesus was lying or he, yeah. he's not the true Messiah because look, this hasn't come to pass. And the kind of, when you think about the blood of Abel, like we're talking the very first guy to ever die. Yeah, it's right. kind of crazy that all the blood really from the beginning of the world until the time of Jesus is going to be required of that generation. It kind of makes you ponder, well, what did the flood do? You know, did it, did, did yeah, the flood right. not deal with that? And, and Noah is going to come up in both of these letters. Yeah. Uh, Ty, do you have any other thoughts on um, this? Well, yeah. And so you mentioned Noah, that's exactly where I was going to go. Um, Noah comes up in, in first Peter three and then in second Peter um, two, I think, and um, or second Peter three. And um, in the, in first Peter three, it's, it comes up in probably um, aside from the book of revelation, probably the most um, uh, difficult passage to exegete. Um, for, for most commentators, it's, you actually have to go to the Greek there. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I I remember preaching through, I preached through first Peter. And when I got to this point, um, I introduced the sermon by saying, um, Peter says in second Peter, how, um, Paul really writes some hard things and just thought, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to have to ask Peter, did, did you forget first Peter three when you said that? (laughs) Because, um, I think you give Paul a run for his money, but um, uh, let, let me just read that section. Um, yeah. if we have time here for first yeah, Peter three, um, starting in verse 18 and, and go to the, um, verse 20. So he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God be being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. So Jesus suffered for our sins. Um, and this is, this is, kind of wrapping up where uh, Peter is saying we should pursue good and not evil, love those who hate us. We should imitate Christ like he went to the cross um, and, and trusted in God to vindicate him. Um, we should live that way. Why? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. He took care of all of it, the, the just for the unjust. And he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were saved through water. So Peter says that Jesus went and in the spirit preached to the spirits who were in prison. And those spirits were in previous times, they were disobedient um, in the time of Noah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the question is what, um, First of all, what is he talking about? And then secondly, why is Peter bringing this up? Exactly, yeah. Why in the world is Peter talking? Why does it matter that Jesus goes and preaches to the spirits in prison? Well, one reason it matters is you get to the the last verse in the chapter, verse 22. Um, uh, There's the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So Peter wants to emphasize Jesus is king over all of this, and he's in, in control of all that's going on. So again, he's writing to um, comfort, encourage, and strengthen these Christians that he's writing to. But again, like why talk about Noah? And I think um, there's two main interpretations of this passage that I think are, are good interpretations, and one has to do with understanding um, the biblical cosmology, understanding what um, I don't know if, if we want to get into this here, but understanding um, the different places where the dead go. So you have Hades, which is the place of the dead, um, which when in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus descended into hell or he descended into Hades. That's what we're referring to. We're not talking about Jesus going into the lake of fire. 
Okay. Um, and so Hades, though, is divided into two sections. You have paradise, which is the place where the righteous go or the, that God has chosen to, um, to be with him. They go to paradise. And then Tartarus is the place where those um, who are being preserved for um, condemnation. Um, and Peter actually talks about that in Second Peter as well. So there's that understanding of what's going on here. And Jesus goes to Hades in order to proclaim his, his lordship over the living and the dead. Yeah. There's another interpretation that says um, what, what Peter's referring to here is not Jesus himself literally preaching, but it's actually in the days of Noah, Jesus through the spirit was preaching to those spirits at the time they weren't in prison, but now they are. Um, and, and well, so how did they get into prison? Well, it was through the flood. When the flood comes and God wipes out the entire earth, he wipes out all this wickedness, but preserves his chosen people. Yeah. Um, I think Peter is reminding um, the Jews that he's writing to of their, their history. God preserves um, those that he has chosen and he preserves them in the midst of judgment that is coming and, and wiping out everything. Now God had promised that he would not do the same thing in the flood, but the judgment that comes on Jerusalem is a, um, has cosmic effects. Yeah. It, it is a world changing destruction that comes. The temple is no longer the place where you go to worship God. Yeah. That whole system is done away with. And so, so why does he bring up Noah? Well, um, to, to identify that the judgment that it, there is a judgment that is coming and it's similar to the judgment that, that, um, came on the world in the days of Noah. And what's really fascinating about this is that Jesus makes the same reference in Matthew 24. Um, the passage that is um, misinterpreted as the rapture passage, um, you know, the two men will be in the field. One yeah, who's be, left behind here? <laughs> exactly. That's the question, right? Who is left behind? Um, one will be taken away and the other will be left. And we, um, you know, American Christianity um, teaches that, um, the one who is taken away is, is the one that God comes and grabs and takes them away and leaves the, the wicked behind. And they're the ones that get destroyed in the, in the fire. Well, um, if you back up just a couple verses in Matthew 24, um, Jesus is talking about Noah's flood. And he says that when the floodwaters came, they swept away the wicked. They took away the wicked in the waters and God preserved the righteous. And then he says, in the same way, one will be taken away and the other will be left. So the ones that are taken away are the ones that are swept away by judgment. They're not taken up into heaven to be with the Lord. They're actually swept away in judgment. And so the fact that Jesus identifies the coming judgment and in Matthew 24, he's talking about the judgment that is coming, like you mentioned, in this generation. So there's this coming judgment on Jerusalem in this generation. Jesus compares it to what happened in the days of Noah. And, and so all of a sudden Peter brings up the same thing. It just yeah. it fits with, that's what he's talking about. And then to say yeah. the same thing in first Peter or second Peter as well. Yeah. I was going to just jump to that uh, parallel passage of so sorts in second Peter, which I think helps interpret first Peter where it says in uh, chapter two, verse four, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. And I believe that's, Tartarus, if I, yep, that's Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. And he kind of same line of argument. Cause yeah, I was kind of wondering, yeah, which, which interp interpretation would I take? What, is it the Noah is preaching as he's building the ark? Uh, he's a preacher of righteousness. Right. Um, and then the pe he's preaching to actual humans or is it Jesus going down to the underworld and preaching to angels? I think the second Peter passage might suggest the latter interpretation where he is going to the spirits, but, uh, but Noah also really did preach righteousness right. in the building of the ark. And there's all sorts of types and antitypes here uh, that you could get into where, uh, you know, even the construction of the ark is this, you know, mini mini cosmos itself, uh, the the firmament is going to be this other major theme that happens. The the rainbow is put into the 
the firmament, and then now uh, the judgment that's going to come not by water but by fire is actually going to burn up this this firmament. Um, and then the temple is this mini cosmos, this mini world, and that's going to be be destroyed. I think that that helps uh, kind of answer some of the questions about Second Peter three, which is also a really challenging yeah. passage. Um, I would want to recommend to people if you do want to do the deep dive on this. Uh, kind of the best commentary that I know um, is by Peter Lightheart. He wrote this uh, exposition of Second Peter called The Promise of His Appearing. And he really gets into kind of the nuts and bolts if you want to follow the argument for kind of what we're, we're talking about here. Um, I'm not sure if there's a, a – I haven't come across a really bomb commentary on First Peter. Did you, when you were preaching through it, is there any commentary that you would recommend that would rep- represent some of the, this, these views? Yeah, I, I can't remember. I was thinking about this earlier. I can't remember where I got the um, the interpretation that really emphasizes Noah. Yeah. Um, um, so I don't recall where. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with it. That's why I think it's okay. <laughs> um, it's not new to me uh, or new, new from me. Um, yeah. But I think uh, it's out there. Yeah, I can't remember exactly where. One okay. thing I would just say, and um, you were talking about it's um, – did did Noah actually preach? Um, is it talking about Noah preaching to the spirits and or not? One thing that I think is um, just to add to that or another data point is you look back at the beginning of First Peter um, when when Peter is talking about the um, all of the the prophets who have who were telling about Christ ahead of time. He says that they were um, they inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So Peter is, um, first of all, there's some good Trinitarian stuff there, um, <laughs> identifying the Holy Spirit with Christ. But also, um, Peter's happy to say that these people were preaching in the spirit of Christ. And it's very similar to what he says, actually, in, in chapter three. So there's, I think you could make the case that Noah is, at that, or that Jesus is preaching through Christ, or through, I'm sorry, Jesus is preaching <laughs> through Noah, um, yeah. right, when he's, when he's talking about preaching to the spirits. Anyhow, that's sort of an extra thing, but. Yeah, there's, there are some really cool tidbits. This would be maybe, maybe kind of like a minor theme <clears throat> in both of these letters about your doctrine of scripture what's happening in preaching because, you know, a lot of people want to make this uh, strong dichotomy between, you know, the time of the gospel and the time of the law. And there is a a totally something you need to talk about there in terms of the covenants and the administrations there. But it even, it says in Galatians, I believe Paul says, you know, uh, the gospel was preached to Abraham. And here you have uh, Jesus was preaching through Noah. The spirit of Christ was, was preaching through uh, these prophets before we ever knew about, you know, Jesus from, from Galilee. Right. Um, one of the other themes I want to talk about here is this kind of idea of exile and the temple. And I thought as I've been med- meditating on first Peter and why he, why he talks about what he talks about here. So if we're thinking these are Jews that have been scattered and I, we don't know maybe what exactly this diaspora was. If you read the book of Acts, uh, right after they kill uh, Stephen and Paul is uh, Saul is persecuting them, they're scattered. Some of them go to Samaria, etc. Uh, you also have in Acts two at Pentecost, there's this gathering from devout Jews from around the whole you know world. So how whenever this dispersion was. Um, if you're thinking, okay, how would I preach to these people that are scattered? You know, as you're, as you're a preacher, you know, okay, how do I preach to people in Seattle right now? You're going to look for analogous uh, kind of things in scripture. And this is, there's a really rich tradition in the history of Israel of exile, of return from exile, of building a temple after you return from exile. And those are some major themes here. It starts in chapter one with this addressing uh, these Jews in the dispersion. And then in chapter two, he's going to talk about this, these living stones, this cornerstone, this foundation. It's as if he's wanting to remind them of God's work in, in the past. They were scattered in Babylon, taken over by Assyria. Eventually they go back and rebuild the temple. Do you have any thoughts or comments on, on either of these themes? Yeah. So one thing that um, is, I think evident is how 
just understand or looking at Peter's tone to these people, he really wants to comfort them. He really wants to encourage them. He's very pastoral and fatherly towards these people. And one of the reasons I think, you, or one of the ways you see that is, um, is that theme of temple language. The, the temple was something that, that was very near and dear to the hearts of the Jewish people. And he's writing to Jewish Christians that have abandoned the temple. They don't have a home anymore. They don't, they probably can't go to Jerusalem because they'll be kicked out or they'll be martyred or they'll be persecuted in other ways. Um, they, they can't go to the temple. And we know that there are Christians that would still go to the temple. Paul goes to the temple. And so it's not like they needed to, for theological reasons, abandon the temple yet, but they were forbidden from it. They, they weren't allowed to go home would be what it would feel like, I think. And so what Peter is um, encouraging them in is, in is you are the temple you are the living stones and and it's okay that you can't go to the temple you have that um, by being the people of god Um, and that builds into his exhortation to be hospitable to one another then in first peter 4 um, the community life of christians is important because we are the temple we are the home of the people of god in one sense so there's that there's this fatherly um, and pastoral tone that he takes with them yeah Um, the other thing just about the sojourners and, and pilgrims thing that I, um, I like to, to mention is that uh, he, in, in chapter two, verse 11, he says, uh, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So he's um, making the case that you're not at home. You're not, um, or you don't have a settled place, but still make war against these um, fleshly lusts. Um, and, and the temptations of your flesh. But um, what's really fascinating about that is people like to, to say, oh, sojourners and pilgrims, our home is not here. Our home is actually in heaven, and, and we're just waiting for God to take us away. Um, and you remember that who's the most famous sojourner in the Bible? Abraham. Abraham, right? Abraham is the most famous pilgrim in the Bible. He's identified as a sojourner and pilgrim or, or similar language in Hebrews. Um, and what is Abraham doing when he's sojourning? It's not his home, but it's only not his home because it's not his home yet when he's walking through the land of Canaan. It, it's been promised to him. And so he's going around, he's planting altars and driving out bad guys and making deals and buying land. And he is be, you know, laying the groundwork for the land that God's people are going to, to inherit. So when Peter tells us that, or tells the people he's talking to and us by um, extension, you are sojourners and pilgrims. It doesn't mean that, um, that we're just waiting for God to rapture us out. Right. It, it means no, you're sojourners and pilgrims. So get to work, start, start trusting in God and making this your home. Cause Jesus has, has inherited the world and he's told you to go throughout all of it and make disciples. So go and start, doing that. Um, So, which is just a a helpful um, post-millennial view of, of what it means to be sojourners and pilgrims. Um, And I think, I I just think we jump to the conclusion, sort of a Gnostic idea that it just means that we are going to be taken out of here. Yeah. I think that's a huge issue and you'll see even whole theological systems building this kind of exile mindset or uh, you know, we're merely pilgrims passing through. And um, if you think about the historical circumstance of your, the home of your God, so to speak, you know, the dwelling place, the pride and joy, you know, it's like, it's like your home, the White House, you know, the, all the, the major monuments in America were to just be destroyed in an in instant. And you're like, where, what is our identity as a people. And you see with people tearing down statues and destroying property, like that, that kind of stuff matters to people. It's erasing history. And, and God is saying this Jerusalem that has rejected uh, my prophets, it's killed the prophet. Right. All right. You, you've become this haunt of devils, a synagogue of Satan, and, and you got to go. And, and the question is, well, what is our new identity? Our uh, you know, what are going to be our places of worship? And, and is that exactly what you said? The people of God are, as Paul says, we are the new temple. We are where the Holy Spirit dwells. And we are actually the, this new firmament. We are the mm-hmm. ark 
-hmm. that there's going to be this flood of judgment that comes now by fire. And the only safe place is going to be found in the baptized church. Baptism now right. saves that that's what's going to get you, get you in. And that is the, the place of preservation. And, and you, you might even say that the church is like the rainbow. You know, Christ is the only mediator now. That's, uh, that's the only place there is salvation from this, this coming judgment. Yeah. And, and I think as people are thinking about their, uh, what's happening in our world right now, it's easy to want to um, kind of just say, all right, God is going to uh, destroy it and we're just going to kind of hunker down. And that's a different mindset than what Peter has here. It's like, no, this is actually, it's building time. Right. Like God is going to destroy, like Seattle might have been taken over by some, some communists and some crazy folk, right. but, but Seattle is actually our inheritance. Right. It, it belongs to us. And right. it's just a matter of time before God drives out the wicked and the righteous are going to inherit it. And so make your plans. Like there's a time to escape persecution for sure. Paul did yeah. it. Peter yeah. did it. There's a time of scattering. But you still, we still cannot lose the mindset that the world belongs to us because we are in Christ and all things belong to him. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's really a helpful way to put it. One of the criticisms that comes to a, um, a preterist view of Revelation and the other prophecies in the, in the New Testament, so preterism being that um, most of the prophecies in the New Testament have been fulfilled in the um, destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple. Um, one of the criticisms that comes is, well, if that's the case, then um, what is there in those passages for us as the people of God? It's um, Christians, uh, most Christians still believe that the Bible is, even if it's not written to us, it's still written for us. And so the question or the criticism is, well, if all of those prophecies were just talking about something that happened almost 2000 years ago, what does it have to do with me? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that you're getting at is um, if you look at, look at second um, Peter three, where he's talking about this. Um, he's talking about the people that um, the, the scoffers that will come and they're asking, where's the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of Jesus coming? Um, and, um, and, and mocking Christians for believing in Jesus. He, he's this prophet who claimed that he's going to destroy the temple, but it's not happened yet right? It's been almost 40 years. Um, Jesus can't be a true prophet. And Peter says, for this, they willing, willfully forget that by the word of God, by his promise, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So there's that. So it's by the word of God that he made the world and by that same word that he destroyed the world. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as the day of the Lord. So what is Peter talking about with that verse? That's another one of those verses that kind of gets quoted, or many Christians are very familiar with, but I think nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> um, and, or, or we don't stop and think about what it means. And I think um, if you understand that Peter is talking about an impending judgment and these Christians that are concerned and worried um, and being scoffed at and mocked because they believed in Jesus, um, he's saying, hang in there. You don't know God's timing, but you do know the next verse that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is letting Seattle and Minneapolis and New York um, uh, crumble, uh, implode and crumble themselves. But he's doing so in a, and he's taking his time so that more people will be saved. That's God's game plan. Yeah. And, and he's not slack. He, he's promised Jesus the world and he's promised um, the world to us in that we are, we are going to inherit that with him. And um, it might take a long time for Seattle to actually come to Christ, but God is not slack in his promises. Seattle is Christ's. Minneapolis is Christ's. The United States is Christ's. And um, it might not be called the United States by the time it becomes Christ's in a, in a realized sense. And that's okay. 
um, because we, we trust in God and our hope is not in um, the things that we accomplish, but our hope is in the things that we see God accomplish through his church. Yeah. So you see these, these promises or these encouragements that Peter is giving to people who are in a situation where things are really bad um, and it's particular to that situation, but there still is encouragement to us. We, we, we can learn by looking at um, these exhortations to the people talking about the coming judgment on Jerusalem. Um, and we can learn from that. How do we um, trust God when we see people um, tearing their cities apart? Yeah. One of the most encouraging passages when I was, when I was first thinking through my own eschatology and views of the future, et cetera, uh, in Daniel two, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and you see these, this, you know, great statue. And, and then at the end there, it says, there's this, you know, this stone not cut by human hands that, that, you know, hits hits it and then it grows into this huge mountain and then daniel's interpreting it and saying this is the kingdom of god this is what's going to come and and a mountain is is a worship place it's a return to eden where the the garden was on the mountain and if you take um as i do so i i, I don't see any way of second peter 3 referring to the end of the you know time space continuum i think it has to be uh, the end of the old creation order. Um, and, and there's, if you que- have questions about verse 10, where it says the works that are in it will be burned up. Uh, it doesn't actually, it burned up is probably not a good translation. The, the Greek there could be translated better as discovered or revealed. Um, but verse 13 says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so if you take Second uh, Peter, and uh, uh, especially this chapter, as referring to the end of the old creation, mm-hmm. and and then we're looking forward to this new creation. Th- that sounds exactly like what Paul says in Second Corinthians five. Anyone who's in Christ, new creation. Yeah, and we actually are. I, I think. Uh, living in, experiencing in uh, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness is increasing. And uh, we would go to a place like Isaiah 65 and say, yeah, this new heavens and new earth is something that happens in Christ. It began at Pentecost Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and is growing. And then with the destruction of the old creation, now this new creation is, is blooming. And more and more it's growing, and eventually it's going to fill uh, the whole earth. And uh, some people might want to come back and say, you know, how, how, how can you look at Second Peter 3 and the, the kind of the elements burning with fervent heat, etc.? Um, you can look back at the Noah event and say, well, the world was destroyed, but it also, you know, the actual physical matter, material, like it was it's still there. Yeah, right. The world was destroyed, but it's still water and land, etc. And in, in a similar way, I see the destruction on Jerusalem as this, this burning up of the old world, the right. old way of things, and giving birth to this new creation in Christ. Yeah, and just to add to that, the, the other thing that is helpful with that is when Peter says that the elements will melt away with fervent heat, um, um, it's possible that he's talking about the same kinds of things that Paul talks about when he's talking about the elements or the elementary principles of the world in Galatians and Colossians. And it's pretty clear in, in those um, letters that Paul means um, the systems and traditions of the Mosaic law um, yep. of, of the Jewish temple system. And so um, it's possible. It's, I think it's a, um, uh, and I think it's exegetically faithful to say that here, Peter, when he's talking about the elements that will be that will melt away with fervent heat, um, he is speaking metaphorically about something that is going to be completely destroyed, something that's going to be completely undone, um, and that is the system and the traditions and the temple. So there is a literal destruction, a literal burning and falling apart and coming undone that happens at the temple, but that's also. Um, a, a picture of what has happened to the to the temple system. Exactly. Yeah. And for those who want to look more into that, uh, the Greek word there is stoicheia. And if you just look up stoicheia, there's yeah. a rich uh, explanation. If you just look up all the parallel passages, 
yeah, it's going to refer to the, the old world, which was under angelic uh, uh, kind of dominion. So Deuteronomy 32, God apportions to the nations, the other gods, these are, these are angelic beings. And then that old world is, is judged. And, and now who is the ruler? It's not these other gods. It's not these angels who rule by do not handle, do not touch, touch, do not taste. The law was given through angels, as it says in Galatians. Uh, so that old way of things um, ends, and then now we reign with Christ. And uh, if if you look at Revelation, uh, I, so I take Revelation uh, primarily as referring to what's happening in the book of Acts, what's happening in the New Testament period, and foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem. And you look at the judgments that are happening there, um, the angels are the ones who are pouring out these bowls of judgment, and Paul says that one day we are going to judge angels and we are in Christ ruling the world. And so um, I take uh, even just that internal uh, thing you learn about the book of Revelation, it's the angels doing the judgments yeah. as proof that it was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and is talking about the judgment on the old world because now Christ reigns, a man reigns, sits on the throne, and Christians in Christ rule along with him. And the way that we rule is not like your local mayor or governor rules. I mean, we rule through the word, through the spirit, through offering up psalms and prayers to God. Right. And so one of the things we don't want to lose in here is uh, the potency of what worship is, right? The, the temple is the place of worship. Christians are now that new temple. And as we are seeing Western civilization attacked and crumbling, well, what's the new thing that's going to be built? Well, it's, it's got to start with worship. That's mm -hmm. the potent uh, creative power that is going to create the new, the new heavens, the new earth that God is wanting to rot in this world. Mm -hmm. um, any other concluding thoughts on either of these letters before we, or any advice to people as they're reading some, granted, some really hard passages? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing just about reading reading the hard passages is um, the temptation I think is to get frustrated or bored by the hard passages. And uh, Proverbs says it's the glory of God to hide a matter and it's the glory of Kings to seek it out. Um, and so when, when you come across a hard passage in the Bible um, that means that God is inviting you to be a Royal child and act like a King and go seek it out. So, um, you know, the, the Bible reading challenge, one of the things we encourage people to do is just read through quickly. And that's an excellent thing to do. But when you get to those hard passages, um, if you have time, um, act like a king and go seek it out. Go seek out the treasure that God's hidden there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, with, um, in, at the beginning of both, well, there's so a few things here. One is the beginning of first Peter, um, Peter addresses the dispersion with grace to you and peace be multiplied. And one of the very last things that he says in the end of chapter five is, um, uh, greet one another uh, with a kiss of love. Well, there's that one too, right? <laughs> but, um, but he ends it with grace and peace. So he ends with by Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. All this stuff that I've said, this is the true grace of God. Um, then he mentions Babylon and Mark, and he says, greet um, one another with a kiss of love, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. So grace and peace at the beginning and grace and peace at the end. Um, just a couple other thoughts. Um, there's so much, you, there's so much we didn't talk about, but um, verse, the beginning of first um, Peter one uh, in verse two, um, there's a good little Trinitarian passage here. Um, it's helpful when, when you're trying to describe somebody, what the Trinity is. Um, it, um, it's helpful to have some uh, uh, key verses, and this is a good one. Um, so he's addressing these pilgrims, and he says, uh, or the dispersion, he, he says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So the election is the Father's sanctification of the Spirit, and um, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ, he'll say later, um, you're sanctified in the spirit and you are elect in the knowledge of God, of God, the father. There's just a helpful, 
how do you frame the Trinity? There's one place to, to turn to. Um, and then the last thing um, is, uh, again, in, in chapter one, um, this is one of the most encouraging passages in these letters. But um, again, he's writing to encourage Christians who are, who are struggling, who are being persecuted, who are going through trials. And he says, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. There's hope for you in Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why has he begotten you? Well, he's begotten you to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. It's not going to fade away, reserved in heaven for you. God has bought you. He has begotten you so that you have a living hope in this inheritance that is coming for you. And not only that, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The the perseverance of the saints is not our own doing. It's not because we um, grin and bear it. It's because God holds you. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go because he's faithful to his promise. He has promised to give you the inheritance that is in Christ. And he's not going to give that up. Um, and that's what first, that's what first and second Peter are all about. It, um, and so I want to, I want to encourage people who hear this long conversation about difficult passages and preterism and the day of the Lord and the fall of the temple. And lots of people don't agree with that. Fine. Um, I think you're wrong, but fine. That's okay. Um, what you need to know, what we all need to know is that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation all the way to the end. Um, and the church is, is heading for, I think, either great revival and reformation and or maybe accompanied by some persecution. Yeah. Remember, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. That's, that's what our hope is in. Well, Ty, thanks for joining us. Uh, and if you are uh, pondering these things, keep on reading. Do as uh, Ty said, be like a king. Search these things out. Um, until next time, keep on reading.